Welcome to Popular Stories of Singapore Pop, a seven-episode series. I'm Lim Sik. As Chief Executive of Events and Management Company, Music and Movement, I've been part of the Asian music industry for 40 years. In this episode, I'll be tracing the origin of popular music in Singapore, one of Southeast Asia's busiest and most diverse cities. What exactly is Singapore pop music? For this podcast, we ask our singers, musicians, composers and producers this very question. Let's kick things off with an answer from singer-songwriter Shabir. I don't have a straight way of answering that question, but I think I have a lot to think through in that sense. What is the Singapore sound? Do we have a Singapore sound? No, we don't. I don't think we have one right now. Will we? I think it's possible if you look through history Transit cities always have a little bit of an identity crisis because people are constantly coming in and going out and moving in and moving out. So I guess that's why it's so important for us to work on identity, whether it's um, individual, community or national. It's very important to ask these questions. I think it's a very important conversation to have. And hopefully those conversations will enable us to kind of start looking for those answers. And that could help us find that Singapore sound. It is true that identities are often fluid in transit cities, but the highly porous nature of such cities can also inspire a lot of creativity. Singapore, located at the nexus of major global trade routes, is often called the crossroads to the east. So, what is the soundtrack of this particular crossroads between the Indian Ocean and the South China Sea, a place marked by centuries of multicultural mingling? Let's start with traditional Malay music, which was the popular music of its day. We asked musician Rudy Salim to explain some of these styles. Asli is the slowest tempo or the slowest music for Malay traditional. It's more of a going to, towards the set song. So Asli is actually the Malay original song, original beat. So that's what they call it, Lagu Asli. This is the Malay original music. So when we go to, to make it a bit faster, we change into the beat Inang. But Inang is influenced by Indian and a bit of Chinese. During that time, eh, when the migration started, right? So these people coming to Singapore, this is the influence that the Malay adopt and take it. Lah. So after Inang, then we got influence from the Arabs, that we call Zapin. Uh, we, we get the, this beat zapping from Arab. So these traders from Arab came in and they bring in the gambus, you know, the gambus guitar. Uh, that's where they bring into the Malay music and become part of the zapping music. Then, to more up-tempo, the fastest, lah, we call it joget. Lah. Joget has Portuguese influences, most likely dating back to the Portuguese presence in the region in the 16th century. The same is true of Krong Chong, another traditional style. Uh, Krong Chong is uh, totally different uh, from uh, traditional music uh, like Joge Inang because they're using a different set of uh, instruments. This also uh, influenced from the Portuguese because uh, they, I think from Portuguese they go to Indonesia. I think that's the, the start of Krong Chong because they're using double bass, cello, chak chu, guitar, they have flutes and violin. There's no percussion. The British arrived in Singapore in the 19th century, bringing Western classical music to the island. Military band music was also popular, 
and this was performed by soldiers shipped in from Punjabi and Sikh regiments of British India. Later, musicians from Goa, the Philippines and Eastern Europe travelled here. They played in the orchestras of top hotels where couples danced the foxtrot and the waltz. More waves of migration added traditional Chinese and Indian music to Singapore's soundscape. By the 1920s, drama troops from India were staging historical epics in public spaces in Singapore. For these performances, musical ensembles provided live accompaniment. This might have been the earliest origins of later Indian music parties, which were bands that played at weddings, festivals and other community events in the 1960s. For a period, Chinese opera troops performed in dedicated theatres in Chinatown. But by the 1930s, many of these shows had moved to three amusement parks which had opened with great fanfare in Singapore. Named New World, Great World and Happy World, these amusement parks were modelled after similar attractions in Shanghai. They housed dance halls and cabarets and hosted boxing matches and street tease shows. They gave people from all walks of life access to nightlife entertainment for the first time. Everyone, from courting couples to soldiers on leave, flocked to these three worlds. Besides Chinese opera, visitors would also catch Bangsawan, a form of Malay opera with Western, Arab, Latin American, Turkish, Indonesian, Indian and Chinese influences. Each Bangsawan troupe had its own orchestra, which had up to 15 instruments. The amusement parks also had dance halls dedicated to joge, and cabarets where live bands played for patrons who wanted to dance the cha-cha, the rumba and the tango. By the 1950s, the three worlds were at the height of their popularity. But around this time, a movement against yellow culture started to gain momentum. This campaign was led by Chinese intellectuals and students in Singapore who were influenced by political developments in China. They viewed pornography, prostitution and, yes, pop music as degenerate. In a direct translation from Chinese, such decadent culture was called yellow. Here's C.T. Lim, a writer who focuses on Singapore history and pop culture to set the scene. Within Singapore, there's this strong anti-colonial wave that, that started after the war. And so therefore, when you talk about anti-yellow, right, it's not just about the physical freedom that we want, but it's also the, the mental freedom to throw down the shackles of colonial mindset, colonial thinking, thinking that the white man is the best, Western culture is the best. That's how I think we can frame anti-yellow culture. In that sense, it overlaps. I could say it's a subset of, of anti-colonialism. Then specifically how it came about, the local context, I would say in 1953, there was a Chinese female student. I think she was 13 years old. She was raped and murdered. The killer was never caught. And that really sensationalized, the, I think, all the headlines, especially in the Chinese press. And of course, a lot of people point towards the British government, the colonial government, for the societal ills, all right? Crime was rampant. I think Singapore at one point was known as Chicago of the East, all right? Like, like you know, a few gangsters and all that. If you take a step back, uh, I mean, maybe that is true, but maybe that's also been played up by the left wing for their own political agenda, all right? I mean, that's, that's how it works, right? Politics is, I suppose, fair game, uh, whether you're on the left or on the right. That is a real event, that's true, but it's also in that sense, uh, latch upon, or, or if you want to be... Uh, more critical, exploited. 
by the different political groups or interests in Singapore in 53. That is the start of the anti-yellow culture movement. Singapore was still a British colony at the time, but already on the path to self-government. Then Chief Minister Lim Yew Hock and his administration viewed the anti-yellow culture campaign as a cover for left-wing groups who wanted to destabilise society. So the government decided to pretty much leave the nightlife culture alone. This would not be the last time that pragmatism outweighed puritanical impulses in the regulation of Singapore's entertainment scene. When I think about anti-yellow in the 50s, right, or even beyond, to me there are three Ps. Uh, all right? One, of course, Puritan, which could be the case. You're very fervent. You really think that the West is, is and, and sex, drugs, and rock and roll is corrupting our minds. Two, pragmatism. To me, that's the other key point. And third, of course, politics. On one hand, you do have all these left-wing groups latching on to the crime and societal ills and uh, massage parlors, cabarets, the, the worlds, all right? Uh, from a very prudent point of view, but from the Lim Yew Hock's government point of view, right, or, or the, the British government point of view, actually, they are quite practical about it. To them, they see that this anti-yellow movement is controlled by the left-wing does that mean then they suppress the, the cabaret culture and the, the world's, they didn't do that. So in that sense, the anti-yellow culture movement in the 50s, right, I would say had a limited impact on popular music. If you just read certain reports, you say, wow, no, there must be a lot of people trying to shut down the world. No, I continue to do very good business. As a result, pop music flourished in the amusement parks. In these venues, Chinese opera soon gave way to a new format called the Gertai, a live variety show featuring song and dance performances that is actually a uniquely Singaporean innovation. Veteran entertainment journalist Alice Kwan, better known as Guan Shemei, recalls the experience of visiting an early Gertai as a child. This modest setup of simple snacks, a small band, and a few singers on the bill would evolve over time into a glamorous and very profitable performance format. The Gertai became a launching pad for many of Singapore's earliest pop stars. Shuang Guan Liu Yun was one performer who managed to transition from a Chinese opera troupe to the Gertai. He was also a composer and lyricist who sometimes used musical styles from other Southeast Asian communities in songs such as Indu Chingke, which means Indian love song. These tunes played into a Nanyang style trend in Chinese pop music at that time. In the mid-1950s, he started acting in movies. Successful Gertai singers often make the leap to the silver screen in those days, says Alice. It wasn't just Hong Kong's established movie market that offered opportunities for Gertai singers. Zhuang Xuefang was a Gertai singer who became a prolific movie star in the 1950s. Known as the Queen of Amoy Films, she appeared in many Hokkien movie musicals produced for markets such as Singapore, Malaysia and Taiwan. Another entertainer who got her start at the Gertai is Pun Sao Keng, or Pan Xiu Chong. Signed to a record label in Hong Kong in the 1950s, she is the original singer of the Chinese evergreen Lover's Tears, or Qing Ren de Yan Lei. 
She also popularized the Nanyang style through songs like a Chinese version of Indonesian folk song Bengawan Solo. Singapore's Malay movie industry was thriving as well, thanks to the presence of Cathay Chris Studio and the Shaw Brothers Malay Film Productions. Music was a big part of most movies in those days, and Malay movies were no exception. Since they were being made in a part of the world where hybridity was already a way of life, Malay music was eclectic. Bangsawan influences were strong in the early films. Many directors of these movies were from India, and they added music conventions from their own cultures. This movie business also provided livelihoods for many future icons. Zubir Said, who would eventually write Singapore's national anthem, was a member of a Krongchong group and the band leader of the Bangsawan troupe before he started composing music for Shaw Brothers and Cathay Chris. Zubir Said mentored P. Ramli, who started out as a playback singer for Shaw Brothers before becoming a famous film actor, singer, composer and director. Singer-songwriter Art Fazil describes how this vibrant film industry laid the foundation for Singapore's music industry. Because of the movie industry with the Shaw Brothers Malay Film Productions, so all people like P. Ramli from Penang came down and all that. The music industry was an offshoot of that because when they were making musicals, right? So they need to record the music for the film. So that's when the recording industry kind of got into a serious mode. P. Ramli created many songs for the movies based on traditional styles such as Inang, Zapin and Asli. But he was also very skilled at incorporating preparing musical styles into his work. So, as jazz became the dominant sound of popular music, his work changed accordingly. In the 50s, 60s, music more, more to jazz music. If you listen to like uh, Tan Sri Pirambi music, there's element of jazz also there, you know, even though it's in Malay. And also Nona Asia, the legendary singer Nona Asia. And also the late Saloma. They sing all those jazz kind of music, more of the 50s. The rhythm already more to jazz, swing jazz. That is singer Rahima Rahim. Her father, Rahim Hamid, and uncle, Ahmad Daud, both had ties to the film and music business. My uncle was from uh, Penang. So he came to Singapore to work in one of the clubs, I think. I don't know where. But he's more to singing on, on film and acting. But my dad, yes, he started in the 50s um, and he, he was known as Nat King Cole of Singapore and then he started to sing in all the, the, the club scene like um, Orchard, Golden Venus, West End Point, you know, all, those, all the clubs, popular clubs in Singapore. So in the day he worked at Cathay as a sound editor for film and at night he was a musician, he sing and he plays the drums. Rahima started sneaking into clubs to watch her father perform jazz standards when she was quite young. But for those who were not lucky enough to get a front row seat at these hot spots, there was always the radio. That's how veteran broadcaster Brian Richmond got his tunes as a child. I grew up listening to, uh, you know, jazz standards uh, with songs by people like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. and Perry Como and the likes. And uh, that sort of filled my nights <laughs> listening to music. It was by radio. And those days, of course, you know, <laughs> the bigger your radio, the more envied you are by your friends and all that. Uh, but I've got a little transistor 
which my father gave me. And uh, I used to go to sleep with that uh, transistor radio. Soon, the musical stylings of one Elvis Presley started to compete with the big band sound of the Rat Pack. Elvis could croon with the best of them, but it was the electric rumblings of rock and roll in his songs that piqued the interest of many listeners. P. Rumley, for instance, certainly seems to take notice of this new kind of music that was taking the world by storm. I mean, this is just my own theory that his singing style could have been influenced by Elvis Presley. Be- because of the sort of nasal, you know, like, like Elvis was saying, You ain't nothing but a hound dog, crying all the time. So that's my impersonation of Elvis, by, by, by the way. <laughs> so, you know, is that... <laughs> So it's that, that kind of vocal projection, kind of bit nasally, you know, in between that, the mouth and the, the nasal passage. And obviously, Piramli had the... Which is also a very crooner style, you know. He was very much influenced by the Western crooner style of singing. For music lovers who were coming of age during this period, it was an exciting time. Music was changing. A pop revolution was just around the corner, and Lawrence Lee, who eventually joined the 1960s band The Checkmates, remembers clearly how much every teenager he knew wanted to be a part of it. Casey Kasem's American Bandstand. That came on on Radio Fusion every Saturday evening at 11 p.m. We would crowd around the Radio Fusion set without fail and listen to his rundown of the top hits of the US. We listened to people like Elvis, Ricky Nelson, the Evely Brothers, and that sort of inspired us to say, hey, listen, uh, we got to be like these guys. Huh? Uh, we got to play the guitar. That was the flavor of the day. Every teenage boy had to learn how to play the guitar. Some progressed, some didn't, but everybody was able to play the guitar as far as I remember. In those days, schools and society in general seems to have a more relaxed attitude about these non-academic activities. I had this group from St. Pat's and uh, they were were not too confident (laughs) with their singing abilities. They've heard me sing a couple of times, so they say, Brian, come and join us, you sing. I say, sure. I enjoyed it, you know. I think thanks or no thanks to the teachers, you know. When you don't do well in school, uh, the teachers will tell you, if you can't study, go and join a band. (laughs) Yeah, there was one particular teacher who told told, uh, somebody that, you know. There were some bands from SGI, right? St. Andrews had its own bands. St. Patrick's School had its own bands. Raffles had its own bands. ACS had their own bands. It was just a phase that every teenager, you know, went through. And I guess it happens throughout all the schools. My dad was quite neutral about it, all right? He never objected to my playing the guitar, but he never encouraged me. I was in primary six when I started playing the guitar, learning the guitar, and I was going full steam ahead. Eight to 12 hours a day, nothing but the guitar. To the extent that when I went to bed at night, my fingers would be throbbing, but I pressed on. Well, the outside of that is that um, I achieved completely F9s 
for my preliminary exams. That was the only time my, my dad stepped in. He said, hey, listen, this cannot do, all right? I have not objected to your playing the guitar, but listen, hey, you got to get your grades. So I had no choice but to put the guitar aside. And fortunately, three months later, at the real final exams, I managed to scrap through. For John Chi and Raymond Ho, parental approval was much easier to come by when they started getting into music. This is Raymond. No, as far as my parents were concerned, you know, they were happy that I'm not getting into trouble. I am the eldest of seven children, so my parents got a lot to spare. <laughs> and this is John. He's the eldest, I am the youngest, a uh, family of six. In those days, there was no Nintendo, there was no handphone game, so there was nothing to do. So when John says, OK, let's go and and, and get ourselves involved in talent time. Say, why not, you know, something to do. Right? Uh -huh. And it kept us off the streets, you know. So John, Raymond, and their fellow St. Patrick's schoolmate Leslie Chia decided to call themselves the Crescendos. And off they went to try their luck at the 1961 Radio Singapore Talent Time competition. They made it all the way to the finals, which was held at Victoria Theatre. Was it fun? Yeah, it was fun, but it was scary also standing on, on the stage at Victoria Theatre somewhere and then facing two, three hundred people and, and they were all very well attired because in those days you don't have youngsters attending this no. you, they are all British expats and, and they were in jackets and evening gowns The three of us, we didn't have that kind of money to splurge to have a, a very beautiful or very nice jacket or even a long sleeve shirt. So what we did was, we bought ribbons, made it into a bow tie, and that's all we had. Just a normal short sleeve shirt with a ribbon made into a bow tie. They sang Dean Martin's Memories were made of this and placed second. Thanks to their talent time exposure, the Crescendos were soon performing cover versions of pop songs in many shows. That was the time when Singapore was growing up and so were we because you must understand at that point in time we were the kids that grew up post Second World War, right? And Singapore was really finding its feet culturally as well as socially as well as economically. In fact, Singapore had only attained self-government two years earlier, in 1959. With that came another anti-yellow culture campaign. PAP won the election in May in '59, and within a month or so, they launched an anti-yellow campaign. And it was a joint campaign by three ministries, Ministry of Home Affairs, Ministry of Education and Ministry of Culture. But the question asked is what impact it had right, on popular music. And I've written that actually has limited impact. Again. If you look at it, it's, like, it's very curious. Like why this whole rhetoric? Why this Big Bang show and tell we are doing this? So that there were specific policies. They did ban playing or rock and roll music on the radio. They banned jukeboxes. They banned pool halls. They also banned aircon massage parlors. I think aircon was a big deal back then. Also all these CD places. All right. So it had an impact on music. But I would say actually it's on very surface. It was a Big Bang in 59, but slowly it tapered off. One sure sign of that is in 61, 
you have Cliff Richards and Shadows playing in Singapore. This concert, featuring the most famous English rock and roll act of the time, is a seminal event in Singapore's pop history. A teenage Brian Richmond was part of the audience at the Happy World Stadium, having paid for one of the cheaper seats. Oh, it was, it was crazy. There was no air conditioning. It was all ceiling fans. And uh, despite all the ceiling fans being used, uh, it was still quite hot because of the number of people who were there. And they were screaming and shouting. After every song, they'll be clapping along. And then when, you know, another song comes on and, you know, they are familiar with that song, they'll go crazy. Absolutely bonkers. I mean, we listened to Cliff Richard and the Shadows, you know, on radio and what have you and all that. And then suddenly to see them live performing, because you know why? We don't get a, a chance to see them on TV. TV came about only in 63. So before that, we never had TV. So we, we never knew uh, what the band looked like until, yeah. But we are very familiar with their sounds. So when you see that band performing live, we all went crazy because it's like you, you connect with the songs that you've heard on radio, but now being played by the same people who came up with those songs. The crescendos, fresh off their Talentine performance, had scored the plum gig of opening for Cliff Richard and the Shadows. I was way above the clouds to be backstage with Sir Cliff Richard, you know, Hank Marvin, Bruce Welch. It's unbelievable, you know. I mean, they was, and they were friendly. They were talking to us, no? I mean, to rub shoulders with people like them is un unbelievable, right? While the, the shadows were playing their music, I think it was Hank Marvin, the lead guitar, who plays uh, Apache. You remember the song Apache? While he was playing, he broke his pick. He had to have another pick, otherwise how is he going to play? He just looked at one of us at the back. So we loaned him. That pig never came back. <laughs> they probably didn't know it at that time, but what the shadows contributed to the Singapore music scene was priceless. Watching them on stage inspired a whole generation of musicians here. Electric lead guitar, electric bass guitar, and a rhythm guitar, three guitars with one drummer. The, the British started this summer, by the shadows and the Americans started it with the ventures and then later on everybody copied. I think I can safely say that every musician in Singapore bar none started because they listened to the shadows. This was something this was something fresh this was something new this was something exciting alright four guys uh, smartly dressed good looking guys playing red Fender guitars, and, and their sound, oh, it really blew our minds. Now back to the question of why the government's anti-yellow culture efforts in 1959 had a seemingly light touch for rock and roll. If you think about it, it's very curious. You know, on one hand, they say rock and roll, Western pop music is bad. And on the other hand, they give the license, they allow it to happen. And my argument is that it is not just politics. Actually, they are very pragmatic. Because you must remember the British bases were still around in Singapore. And if you check uh, the statistics, the British bases actually create jobs, provided employment, provided defense for, for Singapore. So it's very important, right? And, and you do want to keep your troops happy. Uh. 
and they need entertainment. <laughs> All right. Uh, there's only so much beer you can drink. Uh, you still want, you know, you want, you want live music. Uh. These British bases were important performance venues for the Singapore bands of that period that were playing Western pop music. We had the RAF, the British Army, and the, the Royal Navy and all that. But uh, more so with the RAF, uh, we had uh, places like RAF Changi, RAF Tenga, and they will have all these functions on weekends. Yeah, well, they, they'll organize their own little dance parties and all that. And where do they get their bands from? From uh, our, local, our local boys. Meanwhile, the crescendos were moving on to bigger things. In 1962, they opened for the Blue Diamonds, a Dutch-Indonesian rock and roll duo at the Singapore Badminton Hall. When we were on stage at the Singapore Badminton Hall, we had jackets because the Blue Diamonds wore jackets. So we also had to wear, wear jackets. And the Cliff Richard and the Shadows, they performed with jackets. So we had to wear jackets. And the Singapore Badminton Hall was not air-conditioned. They didn't even have fans at the wings. We were sweating, perspiring like mad, you know, melting from the inside. And that jacket has got to go for dry cleaning after each show. The attention to their image paid off. In 1963, the Crescendos became the first Singapore singing group signed by an international label, Philips. The same year, they performed at the Philips television demonstration event at the Dewan Bahasa Dan Pustaka compound in Kuala Lumpur. 1963, television came to Singapore and Malaysia for the first time, black and white. You know, those huge cathode ray tube, you know. So Philips wanted to sell their TV sets to Singapore and Malaysia. So outside this Dewan Bahasa Pustaka compound, they line up, I think about nearly 200 sets of their TV sets, just to demonstrate to the people outside who were not able to come inside, that was, you know, what was happening inside. So it was being beam live. They wanted to get in to see what's happening inside. So naturally, as spectators, uh, and when, when you have a mob, everybody pushing, 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 they pushed through the main entrance of the door. It was glass, and that, that glass door broke. The security in that building told us that we cannot move out from that building. And they escorted us out of that building through some back alley, back door. For a group whose members were mostly still teenagers, this was as close to living the rock star life as it was possible to get in those days. But even then, they already knew that they could not go on like this forever. Because there was no money in it. Take out your calculator. We recorded 11 songs and uh, we were paid 4% royalties. One single record... Uh, cost $1.50. I don't have the numbers, but let's presume we sold a total of 100,000 pieces. That's $150,000 times 4%. $6,000 for the lifetime. When we had our friends to join us um, as, a, a, as a drummer, we had the drummer and a bass guitarist. There were six of us, and we divided by six. Well, here, to be fair, well, friends are friends. Are. And that $6,000 that we got, let's say the royalties, the covered also transportation, uh, costume. We were given royalties in bits and pieces. No? 
He was a partner. It was nice to be recognized when you're outdoors in public. Of course, people pointing at you and whispering, you know. <laughs> in those days, you can't make a living. In 1960, Singapore's population was what? Less than 2 million. Ah. You, you take the English-speaking group out of 2 million, maybe even 250,000. Out of the 250,000, who can afford to go and buy record? Who last time cannot download? No? The constraints of Singapore's small market continue to be a challenge today. And there is a flip side to making music at this crossroads. Constant exposure to new sounds means our music makers are always plugged into the latest trend. But constant access to new music from all over the world also means listeners here have plenty of options. So it can be tough for local acts to create an original sound and to connect with the local audience. Here is Art Fazel again, reflecting on this perennial problem for Singapore pop. If you are a young musician, if you're an artist in Singapore, you need to be grounded in reality. Because for us, because Singapore is so porous, for a very long time, why we have easily influenced by outside stuff? Because we are so porous. So we are up against uh, not just competition from outside product, which is the Western music. You're also fighting against people's perception of your product, people's perception of you as an artist, like, If you're an artist in Singapore, unless you have made it big outside, it's very hard for you to get that kind of recognition that artists who have gone out to do their stuff and then come back. But in Singapore, the reality is you can only do one gig a week because you do one at the Esplanade, but the whole of Singapore turn up, right? And then you do another one in Bedok next week, the same crowd might turn up, but half might not turn up because they saw you the week before. So we are, we are caught in a situation where we need a bigger market for Singapore. So the template would be uh, Republic of Ireland or Sweden because we have about the same size population. But compared to these two other countries, their local homegrown industry is thriving because the audience are receptive to their music. And obviously their music reach out to the rest of the world as well. In the next episode of Pop Law, we take a closer look at how the creators of Singapore's Chinese pop music sought out a larger market for themselves. To do that, they had to create a unique niche based on the mingled music of this crossroads. Stay tuned. Pop Law, Stories of Singapore Pop is produced by Esplanade Theatres on the Bay, Singapore's National Performing Arts Centre, in celebration of its 20th anniversary. Look out for more episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To listen to some of the songs mentioned in this podcast, check out our Spotify playlist on esplanade.com slash offstage.